0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? I missed you last week. It's good to be home. Good to be back. Let's go. Genesis chapter 9 is where we pick back up after Wayne's message last Sunday, and I listened to it this week, and it was excellent. If you missed it, if you were away on spring break, if you're back in town, you weren't here last Sunday, I really encourage you to, to pick up that message on a, a CD or on our website. Um, you will be encouraged. Very important text at the beginning of chapter 9 of Genesis, but we, we pick up on verse 18 now, and we've got a longer text this morning. And so we're gonna we're gonna clip along at a pretty quick pace, and we're gonna we're gonna settle down on uh, I think some really uh, important important points and truths that we'll see from this really interesting scene, the Tower of Babel, where God scatters people and confuses their language and disperses them all over the the earth. But before we do that, as you're finding Genesis, its the first couple pages. Uh, Genesis chapter nine. If you're not familiar with looking up a Bible, looking up books in the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can always use the one that's underneath the chair in front of you. And I'd encourage you to take that Bible as your own if you if you don't own a Bible and keep that. Let that be our gift to you. As you're finding that, let me just mention a couple of things about uh, the upcoming schedule. As Will mentioned in his prayer. Uh, most of the pastors and elders uh, this week will be gone to Louisville, Kentucky for uh, a conference that we like to go to every other year. It's called Together for the Gospel. It's a conference of pastors primarily, but just anybody's welcome to come to it, that is put on by some uh, leaders in the church that we have learned a lot from over the years. And it's, it's held there in Louisville, Kentucky. And so most of us will be up there the entire week, Monday, through Friday, and then we'll be back um, for next week. But uh, all of it, just just I think Reynolds and Doug are staying behind, and then Wayne is staying behind too. His back is kind of bothering him. It's hard for him to drive all the way up there, and so if you're you're not going to be without shepherds, if there's something that happens, please do call the office and let us know, but most of us will be gone all week. Pray for us. It's going to be, Lord willing, a really encouraging time, and then as a quick little follow-on to that conference, I'll stay for just a little day-and-a-half pastor's retreat with a group of pastors across the world, a very small group of pastors across the world. It's called the Nine Marks Pastoral Network, and I'll, I'll have an opportunity to just be encouraged and uh, fellowship with those brothers. So do pray for us as we, as we hopefully are encouraged this week uh, hearing the Word of God preached and fellowshipping with other like-minded brothers uh, around the world. All right. Have you ever just wanted like a mulligan? Like just, I wish I could do that again, right? You know, if I just had a second chance, really, I could, I could, I could get the job done. Or have you ever just completely messed something up and thought, you know, if I had better resources, I, I, could, have, uh, I could have got the job done. I think we've all felt that. Uh, I'm sure we'll probably feel it again in, in the future. We, we mess things up. And this morning we're going to look at the remainder of Genesis 9, all of Genesis 10, and the first half of Genesis 11, a a large chunk of Scripture this morning, lots of genealogies which we'll glean some very important things from, but two really important scenes. Noah and his sons right off of the ark, and then the Tower of Babel, and I think that what We want to settle our minds on is this this sense that mankind, left to himself, left to his own devices, is really engaged in a fool's errand. We will mess it up, even the best of us, righteous men like Noah. And there is a certain folly that we find in the scriptures, a folly of the man-centeredness of man. And I pray that today as we look at this passage and then as we come to the end of this passage and as we, as the first Sunday of the month as a congregation, come around the Lord's table and remember what God has done in Christ on the cross to absorb the penalty for our folly and our sin, satisfy His right and just wrath against our failure and rebellion, and then win the victory over it by causing His Son, God the Son, Jesus, in the flesh to rise again in victory over sin and death. As we come this morning around this table to remember that moment, I pray that we will see today the folly of man-centeredness and the sufficiency and the beauty of the cross. Well, let me pray, and then let's Let's read. And we're going to read a lot of names. Now, a couple weeks ago, Robert preached on Time Change Sunday. I strategically gave him a passage on Time Change Sunday with lots of hard names. And now the boomerang has come back around. And so it's the end of spring break. It's raining outside. You wish you were still on vacation or you're jealous about those who are on vacation. It's horrible weather. Lots of Hebrew names. Awesome. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, what a great privilege to gather together, to be people that methodically plod through your scriptures. I pray today for my friends in this room that who have come maybe by invitation of a friend. Maybe they've been here for a while and they are not yet trusting in the finished work of Christ for their right standing, standing with, with their creator. Lord, I pray that today you would be so kind as to give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe, even in a sort of strange and at times maybe confusing Old Testament story. Lord, show us Christ and give life in Christ. And for my brothers and sisters that are Christians in this room, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would humble us, that you would again point us away from ourselves and to You, to Your work in Your Son, Christ. And as we come to the table this morning, Lord, I pray that we would gaze into the beautiful finished work of Jesus, that we would examine ourselves in light of His perfection, and that it would produce in us humility and worship as we come to You. Help us now. Look at this text. Give us us focus. Give us joy. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 18, chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people Of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, it didn't take long for things to go wrong, did it? (laughs) Three, four verses in. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Remember, that's the son of Ham. It's interesting that he would curse Canaan and not Ham. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, let's stop there and make a few observations. First is that we see, and and Wayne made a really good point of this last week, we see so many similarities between Noah and Adam. and, And essentially, what's happening in the flood that we've spent the last couple weeks on is that because of mankind's wickedness, because of the folly of mankind, God is, in a sense, shaking the etch sketch and recreating the world, choosing, not because he was righteous, but giving his righteousness to one man, Noah, and calling him out, putting him on this ark, and through this one man, really starting again creation and now blessing, judging and blessing creation by saving humanity from its own wickedness through this one man, Noah, who becomes this sort of Old Testament shadow of Christ, the eventual one man that is coming through whom God will finally and fully save his people. And so Noah is is a lot like Adam. Not only is is he this this, this first one, but he also falls like Adam does. So we see a second creation, and we see a, a second fall. I want us to notice also that we see... A father's folly that leads to a son's sin. So we have this really just moments, it seems like, in the biblical text. I'm sure it was, it was more than just a couple of days. But we see right off the boat, this new chance, this new beginning. We see Noah getting drunk on wine. And we see that leading to the sin of his son Ham. And we see this mix of consequences and grace as a father's folly Leads to his son's sin. We see the consequence where Noah's drunkenness led to Ham's sin, which we're going to look at in just a second. And this is just, I think, a a warning to us. The fathers, we are by God's design naturally leaders, and we will lead either for good or for bad. And our sons are, are watching us. The world is watching fathers. So there's, I think, great gravity as we see the, the folly of this father opening the door to the folly of this son. But yet, I see this great grace, strangely as well. Because I, I don't want to sort of ransack us with guilt and say, oh, as, as, as fathers in this room, maybe look at their lives or look at themselves as parents and realize what a, maybe what a a mess they've made of it. Well, know that the same father who is encouraging you in these scriptures, me, this, this earthly father that is encouraging us to, to be like our heavenly father and not to be like earthly fathers that lead their sons into folly, I, I can think about in my own life where I have failed my sons and my children and my family. And, and so, so know that that there's grace in this. I I know there's grace for me, there's grace for you, but we see also, I think, this sort of strange, and I see this running through the whole fabric of scriptures, that when I see good men that God sets his grace on, when I see their weakness, I'm actually strangely encouraged. So, So God calls men, and women for that matter, who are jacked up. I mean, let's just do a, a quick glance through scriptures. Noah, God really sets his saving love on him, makes him righteous, gives him his favor, right off the boat, he jacks it up, right? In a couple weeks, we're gonna look at, or next week, we're gonna look at Abraham, and then we're gonna take a little break in Genesis for a month or so, and we'll get back into Genesis in the summer and look at the life of Abraham, who God speaks to directly and calls him and says, you're my man. And just a few chapters later, I mean, you would think if God speaks to you, that's a confidence-inducing event, right? Just a couple chapters later, Abram is lying about his wife, saying that she's his sister because he's scared that this king that he's facing is going to kill him and take his wife, right? I mean, come on. God calls men and they jack it up. Moses, I mean, we see Moses, uh, this timid stutterer, killing a man. Not ideal, but God Choosing to use Moses. David, come on, David, a man after his, his, who's after God's own heart, does horrible things in his life. Paul, killing Christians before God sets his saving love on him and calls him to be his apostle. Peter, the overbearing, timid one who puts his foot in his mouth and can't stand up to a little girl at a campfire. and Noah this man who's supposedly righteous right and is righteous for emphasis gets off that was that was for emphasis that little boom there <laughs> gets off the boat and jacks it up dad's be like like be rebuked but be encouraged at the same time right Be be convicted to change, but not condemned to guilt. As you look at your life and you think, oh, I can think about how my folly has led to this folly of maybe people around me, or my, my children know that God uses men trapped in folly. That's what he does. That's the story of the gospel. But what about Ham's sin? Isn't it kind of strange? I mean, Noah gets drunk, and there's this sort of strange scene where Ham... Seems like he's just an innocent bystander. He walks in on his dad, who is laying there in the tent naked. And in verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So, so what's going on there? And then after that, we see that Noah becomes very upset. Once he comes to his senses, after the two older brothers walked in backwards, not seeing their father's nakedness, and covered him. What? is going on here with Ham's sin? Why so severe this curse that it would cause Noah to then curse Ham's son? On the surface, it just seems like a kind of awkward moment, right? Why was the punishment so severe? I think what's going on here is that God is showing us how important it is to respect authority and respect our father's and it's showing us this picture of how important it is for us as human beings in families and in community to cover one another's vulnerabilities and sin and not expose them. And I think that's what's going on here. Ham, rather than hiding or covering or, or, or really bearing with his father's sin, the first thing he does is he rushes outside and it's like, almost like he tells his two brothers, look at the old man, you won't believe this dad is, I mean, three sheets to the wind. Can you believe, I mean, he's naked. (laughs) What's going on? And isn't there just this tendency in all of us when we see a failure in somebody else? It's just like we know, like we have this piece of information now and, and it's like we now wield the power and we can use it as we, See fit. Now, I, I, granted, I'm I'm reading into the text a little bit, but I think the punishment is so severe is because Ham is acting in a way opposite of grace, opposite of the gospel, opposite of the way that God acted with Adam and Eve, where He covered them in their vulnerability and shame rather than exposing it. And Ham here is exposing the vulnerability of his father, rather than covering the vulnerability of his father. And boy, I, I see that in my own life, right? When you hear something about somebody and now you're like, ooh, wow, okay. They're not as squared away as I thought. And there's just this like, tendency in us, this insecurity where we want to expose other people. And God is coming down hard on that because it, when that type of atmosphere, of sort of that gotcha exposure atmosphere it stifles grace, kills vulnerability, and squashes freedom. And so Noah curses Ham, son, Canaan. And we'll see Canaan show up again in the rest of the Old Testament as one of the great foes of Israel. And then finally, before we keep reading in chapter 10, just notice that we're going to have to keep waiting for the promise of Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled Remember, in Genesis three fifteen, that first preaching of the gospel where God promises that there will come a seed of the woman, and that seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we were hoping that it might be, uh, you know, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, and then we were hoping that it might be Seth, and they kind of jack it up too. And now we're hoping maybe Noah will start afresh, and our hope is going to be pushed further in. And ultimately, this will be a continuing theme throughout the whole Old Testament, that it's pushing us beyond and outside of ourselves, outside of fallen humanity to the Savior, the one that will come, which is Jesus. Well, let's pick up in chapter 10 and keep reading. Now, this is a long chapter of names, but there's there's much in this text for us. And here's what I want you to, to think about as I as I read these names. We see here the dispersing of the nations, mankind begins to cover the earth. Now in just a moment after we read chapter 10, we're going to read about the Tower of Babel. Where it seems like God is confusing God is confusing and spreading people all over the face of the earth as a punishment for their pride. What's happening in chapter 11 is that's very likely embedded in chapter 10. So it's like we're seeing this great grand sort of panorama of the nations spreading. And then like a little side map, you know, like you look at a map of Georgia and you'd see the whole map of Georgia and then the little side, little blow up would be like Atlanta and you can zoom down in on the streets of Atlanta. Well, that's what's happening in chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10 is a spreading, the dispersing of peoples all over the earth and it is a result of what's going to happen in chapter 11. So 11 kind of happens at the beginning of chapter 10, it's God spreading through punishment people because of their folly and pride, and 10 is the consequence of that, but it kind of happens out of chronological, it happens out of order in the text. So let's read in chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javon, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And so biblical scholars think that the sons of Japheth are people that kind of moved to Europe and Asia Minor. So people were spreading across the earth. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put. And Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, and Sabteca, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom Was Let me stop there and just... It's interesting that Nimrod gets a little extra description of who he is rather than just a name. Uh, I read a a little bit on that, wondering why that was. I think what's happening there is that uh, he's giving this description of the strength of this one particular man, Nimrod, and notice the cities that come from Nimrod. It says that in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which is going to be dealt with rather severely here in an upcoming chapter. Notice also another one of the cities that comes from Nimrod is, uh, is Nineveh, which becomes the place that God sends the prophet Jonah to. And so I don't think that this, what seems like on the surface, a positive description of Babel is he's just sort of, isol- I mean, this positive description of Nimrod is he's isolating out one particular tough guy for, you know, for, you know praise. I think what's happening is he's showing this one particular tough guy who thought he was something, and from him comes this folly of Babel and other places like Nineveh. And and by the way, I mean, come on, if your name is Nimrod, you you, you need to be a tough guy. (laughs) I don't think it has the same connotation in Hebrew or whatever the language was that it does in English, but uh, I grew up in Southern California with Nimrod and being kind of a Anyway, you get, you get the point. Maybe it comes from this. So the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Casluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Caftorim. So we have the sons of Ham, and now zeroing in on his son, Canaan. Verse 15. And most of these, these people from Ham and Canaan populated North Africa and the Mediterranean area. So Canaan fathered in verse 15 Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, and the, the Sinites the Arvidites, the Zimrites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites was extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah. Those will factor in the story later in Genesis. You, you, you've heard those names before. Admah and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham. By their clans, their languages, their lands... And their nations, okay so we 've dealt with japheth we 've dealt with Ham and his son Canaan, who this curse rests on for ham 's sin, and now in verse twenty one through the end of chapter of, of the chapter he 's going to zero in on Shem, and then at the in the middle of chapter eleven, this genealogy of Shem is going to be picked up again, and from Shem now the rest of Genesis is going to deal with the descendants of Shem who are these people from whom the Hebrew nation, from whom Abraham will come and God will pull out a people for himself through the descendants of Shem, Abram, and the Jews that will come from him to be a people for himself so that through this one people he can bless all of these peoples that have scattered across the earth. So verse 21, To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arap, Arap Arpakshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The names of the one was Pelag, for in his days the earth was divided, alluding very likely to the scattering that happens that we'll read about in the Tower of Babel here in a moment. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shilif, Hazar Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hatteram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimeel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill of the country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, I'm glad that chapter's done. But let's make a few few observations. Is that, first of all, we see people begin to spread out across the earth nations and people groups begin to take place. Now, this is very likely not an exhaustive list of all of the peoples at this time, but remember, this is written as a historical history for the nation of Israel, and so these were very likely all of the nations and people groups that they would have been familiar with through the Old Testament age. But as we read about these people groups, many of which have changed names, and, you know, we don't necessarily use these names for these people that become the people groups in the Mediterranean or North Africa or Europe or Arabia or wherever. We see people, right? And when we think about what our mission is as a church, one of the things that Springer prayed this morning when he read from Acts 17 that we want to be a people who have God's heart for the nations. God loves people. And in just a second, we're going to see God curse and bless humanity when he judges them through their building project in the Tower of Babel. God loves the nations. And with meticulous care, God mentions the nations that spread throughout the earth. Notice that there's no just sort of general summary. And from these three sons, a bunch of people just started kind of, God names people because God loves people and we should be a people that love people. We all come from one family. Just notice that, just simple observation there. Doesn't doesn't take, you know, a real high IQ to notice that there's this headwater of humanity. It's Adam. And then comes Noah, And all of the rest of humanity is destroyed in the flood, and then Noah and his sons get off of the boat, and then all of humanity comes through this one headwater, this one source, this one family, this one man, Noah. That means that we are all, we are all we all share a lineage. Just reading that should should crush and destroy any racism or this sense that. One race is superior to another, and I don't think that is, exists in this church at all, but I think it's helpful for us to see this so that when we counter this in our culture, we're able to combat it with gospel truth. There's a foolish misunderstanding that, 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 that God has cursed certain people groups, and giving them maybe a darker skin, and they use this, this curse of Ham and Canaan as a certain validation for that, because they look at this and they say, well, Ham's descendants and then Canaan's descendants, some of them kind of settled in Africa, and so there's this curse. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Canaan, the one upon whom the curse rests, doesn't really even settle in Africa. He settles in the Arabian Peninsula there. And that is just a wicked, demonic reading of Scripture that that we see sometimes still even in our culture. Rather, I think we should see different races and ethnic groups as God's grace, God in His diverse. Beauty and wonder allows different cultures to form and to cover the earth. And, and by the way, uh, ju- just just sort of looking at how God and His common grace allows humanity to adapt, I mean, just notice that people with darker skin tend to have been the people groups that that, that settled closer to the equator, where the sun shines the brightest. And so, as a kind adaptation to protect them from the sun, God causes their skin to, over the course of time, darken to keep them from being harmed by the sun. And if you have red hair and freckles, and you walk outside for 30 seconds, and it lays you up for a week, it's probably because your ancestors settled in like the hills of Ireland, where the sun never comes out. And so, if your light... You're light because God in his grace to your ancestors caused you to develop that way for your good. And if you're darker skinned, God caused your ancestors to develop in that way to protect you from the elements for your good. But we all come from one man, right? Friends, do you see that? Do do you see that? And, And I want you to be equipped with that because... It helps us to see that, that to be a Christian is to transcend the temporary differences of ethnicity. And even all of these ethnicities really flow from one headwater, which is Noah. And we see here, too, before we read chapter 11, the beginning of God's heart for the nations. And we'll look at next week where God calls Abraham and tells him to bless all these nations that we just read about in chapter 10 through his faith in him. Well, let's read chapter 11. Interesting. Nine verses here, the Tower of Babel. And again, remember, this is a blow-up, zooming down in on a scene that happened very likely at the beginning of chapter 10. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Just read these words. I mean, it almost needs no commentary at all. The folly of mankind. Verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top In the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I mean, it's right there, they said it. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth and have to do this sort of thing that God told us to do at the very beginning disperse over the earth and subdue it, you know. Let's just make a name for ourselves. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and conf- there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them From there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. From where we get our our word now, English word Babel, it's like he's babbling, comes from this story here. There the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all earth the earth i want you to notice a couple of things here before we wrap this up notice this great pride of humanity saying that we're going to build ourselves a city and this tower is going to reach to the heavens but notice also that what's mixed with pride is this real insecurity we're going to build this great thing and let's huddle together and lest we be dispersed you know I mean, in the midst of this pride is revealing human insecurity. We've got to kind of huddle together here in case we have to actually kind of go out on our own. So we see pride and insecurity mixed together. We also see mankind doing the exact opposite of what God commanded Adam to do. God commanded Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it. And here we see mankind, right after his recreation, after the flood, repopulating the earth, we see mankind wanting to group together in their insecurity and reject God's command to fulfill his mandate, to fill the earth and subdue it. And I see in this just really clear application of just even, even in our own life as Christians, even the way sometimes we're... we're we're prone to do church. We just kind of want to huddle together, you know, and self-protect and, and, and you know, just kind of have our ideologies and lob grenades at the culture around us. I mean, isn't there something, you know, I, I admit, you, this may shake you guys a little bit, but there's something in me sometimes when you see these crazy people just building compounds in Montana, you know, stockpiling stuff, you know. There's even a show like the Preppers or whatever, you know. All right, if some of you are into that, okay, fine but I think, you know, actually I have a little bit of that in me. I'm like, this past weekend we were uh, at a a remote cabin in the Tennessee woods. I mean, nothing out there. Just in the middle. You couldn't see anything. Uh, Just just no people, nothing. And there's something that kind of appeals to just sort of like separating yourself off from the world and sheltering yourself. And, And I see we, I think we we, we see a little bit of this, we're just going to, we're going to huddle together and do life our way. We're not going to do the hard work of subduing and filling the earth and obeying God and, and being his image bearers. We're going to live life for ourselves. You know, it's just easier to just kind of do my thing and get a good job, have a retirement check the block, worship with my safe family all the time and my church family, and never really get out into the, the difficult parts of our culture. I see this, this natural inclination to sin in this way in me, and we see it all the way back here in the Tower of Babel. And God in his kindness, and we see often woven together, we see it here, we see God punishing mankind for their self-absorption, But even in his punishment, we see grace because his punishment and the consequences of his punishment is the very thing that sets them back and sets humanity up to be able to fulfill the commandment that he gave them back in Genesis 1. So do you see that? They're huddling together, disobeying what God told them to do in Genesis 1, and as a punishment for their rebellion, he's going to scatter them all over the faces of the earth And then he's going to call a man to send and to be a nation that will eventually send and be the church and to be Christians that will send missionaries to all the faces of the earth. We see God's kind, sovereign providence fulfilling his purposes even in our sin. Oh, friends, I find great comfort in that because I have spent a life jacking up obedience to God, right? Just like these cats here on the plain of Shinar trying to build a tower. I mean, how foolish. Foolish. Like you can ba- build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And we see God punishing them for their disobedience. But even in the punishment, we see grace. Sets mankind back on the trajectory to fulfill his mandate in Genesis 1. I look back on my own life and see times of just reckless disobedience. And in God's punishment and the consequences that come from it, I see God weaving together this tapestry and mosaic of putting me back on the track to obey Him like I should have done the first time. Friends, that is grace. Okay. So we see Noah jacking it up. We see mankind spreading across the face of the earth. I hope this has been helpful to you to some degree at some point. But up to this point, this could have uh, everything that we've said could have existed in the self-help book in Barnes and Noble, or it could have. This could have been, you know, a, th- a theological perspective that probably most liberal, non-Gospel believing Christians could agree with. So, what makes what makes this scene a Christian message? Well, we have an advantage, right? We're not stuck at Babel or, or off the boat. We have the advantage. We have the plan unfolded for us. We have the whole Bible. We have the whole redemptive story of the Bible. And we see these consequences of sin where sin causes mankind to scatter and divide. And we see that being much of the story of the Old Testament. But ultimately, it's pointing forward to this New Testament, to this New man, Jesus, who will gather together all of God's people and will bring reconciliation. So let me read as we conclude in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to these beautiful words in Ephesians 2. In Noah and his sons and their disobedience, we see mankind scattered, scattered at Babel. And in Christ, the one who finally and fully obeys God, we see mankind brought together in reconciliation to God and to one another. Ephesians 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, And without God in the world. And isn't that a description of what's going on here in Babel? There's no hope. God is scattering these people. They're without God. The the folly of their efforts to build their own city has caused them to be dispersed away to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God, in His kind providence, has always been working towards this plan to bring man back to himself in Christ. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So think of all of these people groups. These people groups are divided into the Jew and Gentile. And in that word Gentile, we have all of these people groups that cover the face of the earth. And as they scatter, God's ultimate plan before the foundation of the earth is to bring mankind back together to save him from his sin through one new man, Jesus. And he creates his church through this man, Christ. So making peace and might reconcile us to both to God... In one body and, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have one access in one spirit to the Father. And so even as we see mankind scattered, we see it pointing us away from the folly of mankind, the folly of our efforts to make a name for ourselves, pushing us away from our sufficiency to Jesus, pushing us away from our, our plans to build our own cities, metaphorically, for our own glory, to longing for the city that is to come. And then in verse 10 of Hebrews, of Genesis chapter 11, we see now this zeroing in on this man Shem, this son Shem, who from him will come this line This man, Abram, that God will call, from whom he will make a people for himself that we'll read about next week, and from whom through this people that he will bless, not because he only cares about these people, but through this one family of Abraham coming from Shem, God will bless all the nations of the earth that he has scattered. And so in verse 10, we see the generations of Shem. And let me just skim over it and say that we see in verse 12, Shem fathering Arpachshad. And Arpachshad fathers Sheila, And Sheila fathers Eber. And Eder, Eber fathers Peleg. And Peleg fathers Reu. And Reu fathers Serug and 22. And Serug fathers Nahor in verse 24. And then in verse 26, we see then this son of Nahor, Teran, come. And in verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then as we pick up next week and into chapter 12, and eventually when we get through the rest of Genesis, we'll see God zeroing in on this one man, Abram, who becomes later Abraham, through whom he separates out and he calls, he elects from all the nations of the earth. Again, not because Abram was righteous, but because God is gracious. He calls Abram and then through this one man, He plans to bless all the nations of the earth. And we see him do this in the cross. Through Jesus' work on the cross. All of the folly of human efforts are found to be futile and foolish. And ultimately God solves the problem of human folly. By coming in the one man, Jesus. And taking on his shoulders our folly, our sin, and allowing His Son, His perfect Son, to be crucified, to bear the weight of our penalty, and then to rise again in victory over folly, sin, death, and all of its consequences. So friends, in just a second, we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to this communion meal that Christians have been receiving together for 2,000 years now. And when we come to this table, we are remembering what Jesus has done on the cross. What all of this Old Testament is pointing towards. We're remembering that where we are foolish and self-sufficient and rebellious, Jesus is perfect and obedient and righteous. And Christ trusts the Father completely. And then he lays down that perfect life fully human, fully man, on the cross, and because he's God, and because he's a perfect man, his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to bear God's wrath. And then in victory, he rises over death and sin and all of its consequences. And so as we come to this table now, friends, we're not just doing this because this is the first Sunday of the month, but we are looking away from ourselves to Jesus. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian, to look away from yourself to Christ dad are you like Noah who has made a mess of being a father the message of the cross the message of this table is not you need to do better and when you square yourself away and when you're good enough then you can come no the message of this table the message of the gospel is is that we are foolish and we need something outside of ourselves which is Jesus And so come, even as we sang at the first song this morning, come ye sinners, look away from yourself and look to Jesus. But don't come flippantly. Don't just come assuming that you can come because you were raised in the south or you're a member of a church or you confess something. Come knowing that your only hope is in Christ and examine your life in light of what Jesus has done and let that move you to humility and worship and let it fill us afresh with awe and joy and faith, not in our own works because ultimately our efforts to build our own cities, uh, they get, they're, they're building projects that we quit halfway through. But ultimately we look to Jesus who has built a city in His own righteousness for us and look to Him Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so if you came into this room and you're not a Christian, um, you you should not take this meal because we don't want you to confess something that you don't yet believe. But if you are a Christian, come to this table and look away from yourselves. Look to Jesus. And maybe in this, this past hour... The Lord has moved on your heart, and he's given you eyes to see Jesus. Friends, you are welcome to this table. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are welcome to this table, knowing that your sufficiency is not in your works, but in Christ's. And even now, you're welcome to this table if you are confessing in Jesus. And so let's come in humility, examining our folly in light of Jesus' obedience, And let's come and worship him together. Let's pray. And, ushers, as I pray, would you come and be prepared to serve us? Father, I read about the folly of Noah and the folly of these people at the Tower of Babel. And I see my own folly, I see uh, my own sin. But Lord, in in your judgment and in the consequences, I see your grace. So Lord, this morning as we come to your table, would we not come lightly or irreverently just because this is what we do, but would we, Lord, would we come to grips with the gravity of your holiness and the depth of our foolishness? And would that push us towards humility and would it push us outside of ourselves so that we We don't come with our own righteousness. We don't come to this table because we've had a relatively good week. We come to this table because our only hope is Christ. And Lord, as we come in humility, Lord, I pray that this would produce in us worship and confidence. Not in ourselves, but in your lavish grace. Lord, if there's somebody in this room who came in unbelieving, self-trusting, rebellious, idolatrous, self-centered, God, would you give them eyes to see and would they look to Jesus and would they run to Him because their only hope is what this table signifies, the finished, perfect work of Jesus who on the cross and in His resurrection defeated human folly. And Lord, for the Christian in this room who is in a rut who has mistakenly viewed the gospel as a, as a kickstart and now they're peddling on their own, Lord, would you show them afresh the folly of human wisdom? And would you push us outside of ourselves to see our need for Jesus? Because as we read this morning, it's in Him that we live and breathe and have our being. And Lord, would we see Christ and would we worship Him as we come to this table. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.